At the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in southeast Washington state, after radioactive plutonium and americium were found to have escaped from a demolition project, seven workers' vehicles were found to be contaminated and were, according to Hanford management, cleaned up. But now plutonium has been found on two of the previously cleaned cars. So when you hear a genuine expert say... We don't know how many cars actually got contamination on them because workers drove these cars home. They were tested when they arrived back at work and there was still contamination on them. Well, what about the cars where the contamination blew off when they're in their communities or on the highway or whatever? We don't know if workers had contamination on their clothes or on their shoes or on their boots or in their cars. So this was an atrocious breach of their safety protocols. Now there is the possibility and actually probability that plutonium contamination has entered the community, maybe into people's houses, maybe onto playgrounds. Who knows? Well, when you hear information like that, it's clear that if you live near Hanford, you are clearly in that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, an in-depth look at the continuing and escalating problems of radiation contamination from the Hanford site. We talk with Tom Carpenter, executive director of Hanford Challenge, a group that not only follows the events at the Hanford site, but has been breaking stories about these contamination events to the media. We'll also have Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shout-outs, and more honest nuclear information than Robert Mueller has yet investigated, at least as far as we know. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 20th, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in southeastern Washington state, the Hanford watchdog group Hanford Challenge and a scientist yesterday released findings showing that two out of five vehicle filters from vehicles parked at Hanford's plutonium finishing plant that had been tested and released as clean, in fact contained radiological contamination. Hanford Challenge collected the filters, and they were analyzed by Dr. Marco Kaltofen, president of Boston Chemical Data Corporation and an affiliate research engineer at Worcester Polytechnic Institute's Nuclear Science and Engineering Program. The collection took place in the communities of Richland and Pasco, Washington. 
The two filters were determined to have contamination from two separate vehicles and contained americium-241, a highly radioactive element that can be dangerous when ingested or inhaled and can cause severe illnesses. We'll have the full backstory on Hanford's many issues in today's featured interview with Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge. We will also have a link up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, on the health effects of plutonium. Works for americium, too. Cleanup of a nuclear waste dump in Parks Township, Pennsylvania, has been delayed yet again. The dump received radioactive and chemical waste from the former Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corp., or NUMEC, in Apollo and Parks, Pennsylvania, from about 1960 to the early 1970s. The Parks Township cleanup is among the three most important in the country for sites with contamination from nuclear weapons production for the Cold War arms race. This according to the Army Corps of Engineers, which administers the program and is on the line to actually do the cleanup. The cleanup has been planned for 14 years and they still haven't gotten around to it. Local resident Patty Amino, a longtime environmental activist, lobbied for cleanup of nuclear sites in Armstrong County for 30 years. She now says these delays are too long and they are dallying with something they already know is a dangerous site. Patty Amino's full story is told on Nuclear Hot Seat number 326 from September 19, 2017. In New York, on Friday, February 16, the Indian Point Unit 3 automatically tripped and shut down in a scram. It is now on hot standby and is producing no energy. No word as to what caused that scram, which can be likened to driving a car at 100 miles an hour on the freeway and then screaming on the brakes. Not good for the mechanism. The latest on Pilgrim Nuclear at the foot of Cape Cod in Massachusetts is that despite its classification as one of the worst performing plants in the country, Pilgrim will be allowed to skate through its final year and a half of operation without putting in place all federally required cybersecurity measures. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission agreed to extend the completion date for full implementation of federal cybersecurity plans to December 31, 2020, a year and a half after the plant is scheduled to be permanently shut down on May 31, 2019. I bet whoever thought of that one thinks they're clever. And in Colorado, for a barrel of fun, the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge Nature Hike, which takes place over the land that it was contaminated by Rocky Flat, and its weapons material production, is going to take place on Friday, March 23rd and Friday, April 20th. Participants will explore the wildlife, birds, and plants of the refuge. And don't forget to check for mutations, fasciation, and radioactivity. Note that when the nuclear industry has a site that is too dangerous to justify actually building homes on top of it, they turn it into a wildlife refuge. In Japan, on Tuesday, February 20th, a court awarded 15.2 million yen, the equivalent of 142,000 American dollars, in damages to the family of a 102-year-old man who killed himself in the face of an order to flee from his home as the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster was unfolding. Tokyo Electric Power Company will pay the family of Fumio Okuba, 
who never lived outside of his hometown of Itate, and was found to have hung himself in his room on April 12, 2011, a day after learning the government was set to issue an evacuation order for the village. In similar lawsuits in 2014 and 15, TEPCO was also ordered to pay compensation by the Fukushima court over suicides linked to the nuclear disaster. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Fukushima Prefecture is once again harvesting and shipping green laver seaweed as a food product. You may be familiar with them as those very thin, salty, crisp squares of seaweed that health-minded people eat instead of potato chips. But the test farming area is only 10 kilometers, 6 miles, from the Fukushima meltdown site. This is where 300 to 400 tons of radioactive water still pours through the reactor and into the Pacific Ocean every day. Now, an article in Japan Times cited officials as having said the seaweed had radiation levels far below the safety limit. What they failed to take into account is that there is no safe limit on the amount of radiation a person can be exposed to, and especially if it is internal radiation, which is what you get if you eat the little buggers. According to a National Research Council report released in 2005, any exposure to radiation could lead to cell damage and subsequent cancer. That's an awful lot to deliver for a 99-cent snack. Bet you can't survive just one. And that's why whoever the officials are who are behind this unlabeled for place of origin, potentially radioactive snack, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, let's face it. Most mainstream media pays only fleeting attention to any story about nuclear anything, and only when it bobs to the top of the news cycle. That's why you and so many others who want to be in the know turn to Nuclear Hot Seat for your nuclear news. Everything that is reported here is researched, verifiably sourced, and footnoted, even if it is delivered with more than a little attitude. Nuclear Hot Seat provides nuclear stories with continuity and context, along with interviews with genuine experts who do not go along with the radioactive industry's party line. In order to provide you with this information every week, every week, we incur costs. And without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue following this onslaught of nuclear stories. So if you're grateful for the news, background information, and insights you get from the show, help us keep doing it. Make a donation so that we can meet our expenses. You can do so easily by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red donate button. For those of you on a budget, and let's face it, is there anyone who isn't? We've set up an easy, inexpensive way for you to help us out. You can what we like to refer to as buy nuclear hot seat, a monthly cup of coffee. Send the show a monthly $5. It's the equivalent of a cup of coffee, and it lasts a whole lot longer. 
Rest assured that we will not be buying any overpriced coffee with your donation. It will be helping us meet the show's many expenses. So you can make that sustaining donation easily by clicking on the big green donate button at NuclearHotSeat.com. Please, do what you can, and know that whatever you do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. And now, here's this week's featured interview. The Hanford site in southeastern Washington state has been plagued with ever-worsening problems throughout its history, but since early 2017, it has been getting progressively worse as demolition of the highly radioactive plutonium finishing plant has kicked off a series of contamination incidents. To get into the details of the difficulties at the site, the dangers to workers, and to those in the surrounding community, I talked with Tom Carpenter. He is executive director of Hanford Challenge, a watchdog group that keeps up on all aspects of the Hanford site, especially those that management and the EPA would prefer not be talked about. Tom and I spoke last Friday, February 16, 2018. Note that since that conversation, the results of worker vehicle tests that led off the news in today's show were announced. Here's the deep background on that story. Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge, thanks so much for joining us today for Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I love the mission statement of the Hanford Challenge, which is to create a future for the Hanford nuclear site that secures human health and safety, advances accountability, and promotes a sustainable environmental legacy. That doesn't seem to be going too well lately, is it? Well, no. Uh, There's a, a few bumps in the road, but overall, the site is not making plutonium. These days, cleanup is in a set of legally enforceable deadlines. Yes, the deadlines keep slipping. And, of course, there are some some major problems going on right now. So, yeah, this is a tough period. Let's get into some of what's making this such a tough period. There have been an ever-increasing number of incidents at Hanford making the news, especially in the last eight months, specifically regarding the demolition of the plutonium finishing plant, or PFP, site. Let's start with what that site is and what started to be revealed about it as of last June. Well, the plutonium finishing plant is one of Hanford's big facilities to deal with or handle plutonium. That's what Hanford was all about, actually, was to make plutonium for nuclear weapons. So the plutonium was recovered from spent nuclear fuel made in these nine reactors on the river, the Columbia River here in the state of Washington. That spent nuclear fuel was dissolved in acid in these big buildings called reprocessing facilities The plutonium was chemically separated away from that mass of spent nuclear fuel, and it was taken, that plutonium was then taken over to the plutonium finishing plant for final milling and and getting it ready for shaping to be put into nuclear weapons. So uh, that was Hanford's job, was, was to make this plutonium both for World War II, and it made the plutonium, by the way, for the the bomb dropped on Nagasaki, but also for the plutonium for most of the arsenal uh, that the United States eventually developed through the Cold War. The plutonium finishing plant was just imagine a four- to five-story 
facility that's quite large and full of what are called glove boxes, except it's not like what you might see in the movie Silkwood. These were huge glove boxes that just went for 100 yards down the building, and they, they actually called these lines. They're highly, highly contaminated with plutonium. So a few years ago, it was decided that the plutonium finishing plant would be brought down. And uh, a contract was let with the contractor by the government to start designing the teardown of the facility. It was envisioned to be a five-year project. And if they slipped on their deadlines, then they would start losing money. So they had $52 million at stake in profit. And if they started slipping on their deadlines, they would start to lose at first Fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a day, then that would go up to thirty thousand, and eventually, you know, by the time we hit May of this year, they're going to be losing up to one hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars a day. So their profit is disappearing, uh, and that put tremendous pressure on this contractor that resulted in some problems. What was discovered last June? The actual teardown of the facility started about a year and a half ago, and the decision was made by the contractor to not put a a tent over the facility. Now, if you go to any major city, you see a building being torn down or or even uh, being put up, you'll often see fabric clothing the entire building. That's to suppress dust that might come out of that building. They didn't do that. This was an open-air demolition of a plutonium facility. Ah, so a lot of people thought this was stupid and said so, but cost and uh, schedule were more important than those considerations. So in February, they had their first release of plutonium dust outside of what they call the safe boundaries. And here we're talking about February 2017? Yep, a year ago. And plutonium was found outside the safe zone on fences, on workers' boots, and stuff like this. And, you know, they recovered from that and said, okay, it's back to work. We'll do a better job on dust suppression, right? So that's, they spray water, a fine mist of water, over the clouds of dust so that they don't get outside the facility. They've got other ways to do that. But it still doesn't stop the fact. It still doesn't answer the issue that this was an open-air demolition. So in, in June, there was another serious release of plutonium and americium, which is another radioactive product, outside of the boundaries. And this time they found it on workers' lapels in buildings. Uh, there's something called the mask building, which is where they dispense respiratory protection masks. Uh, that workers wear to keep from inhaling plutonium inside that zone. But the point is here that the plutonium went outside the zone where masks were required. And they didn't actually recognize the extent at the time of how far it had gone. And it turns out that about 31 workers ended up testing positive for plutonium in their bodies. 150, 170 tests were done of workers, these were bioassay tests, meaning they look at body waste, essentially, for plutonium. There was a lot of unhappiness because they didn't have the bioassay kits available at the site. The 
only had a few. So they had to go ahead and order them from the company, and it took weeks for these tests to actually arrive. During which time the body is doing what it can to detoxify itself and get rid of whatever happens to be in there. So how accurate is it if the test is happening two or more weeks after the exposure? Well, actually, the standard, national standard is two days. So, you know, these tests should have been performed within two days of exposure. And in fact, it was up to six weeks some of these workers got tests. And you're absolutely right. Um, your body gets rid of this stuff as soon as it can. However, if there are small particles, they're more likely to be inhaled into your lung and lodge in your lung and sit there and irradiate your lungs for the rest of your life. Some of these contaminants are highly dangerous, and any amount of plutonium in the lung is considered a health hazard. There's no such thing as like a safe level. You don't want it in your lung, especially in the deep lung tissue. So that was one thing. The other thing that, you know, apart from waiting too long to test a lot of workers, they told a lot of workers they didn't need to be tested. They were outside the zone, which turned out to be incorrect information. There was wider spread of contamination than they thought. So that also contributed to the fact that some workers either didn't get tested or they got tested later when they should have been tested sooner. They also made some assumptions about the particle sizes without actually measuring the particle sizes of the plutonium. And again, it makes a difference. The smaller the particle size, the more likely it is to end up in your lung. And I don't know that they have yet today measured a particle size as opposed to just assuming that it's, uh, they're assuming it's five micron as opposed to, you know, it could be one uh, micron, it could be half a micron, and that would be more serious. Finally, there's another issue, which is this plant, the plutonium finishing plant, handled what are called high-fired oxides, which are much, much more dangerous than regular plutonium particles. An article or a paper put out by Hanford in 2003 showed that these high-fired oxides will stay in your lung for 30 years and irradiate your lung much, much longer than what Hanford was assuming. So they were assigning doses to workers, and that's, there's been a lot of criticism on the assumptions that they made to assure workers that they're fine. And actually what they told workers was, your dose is so small, it's like flying on an airplane, 10,000 feet, or getting half of a chest x-ray. But that, of course, is assuming external contamination as opposed to what these workers were having, which was internal contamination. Yeah, it was an apples to oranges comparison. A lot of workers knew better, and there's been some real pushback about that, especially from one of the unions at the Hanford site that's been demanding external expert reviews, and now there are independent reviews going on. So an interesting thing happened from this June event, which is the Department of Health, which is Washington State Department of Health, found plutonium particles and americium particles on two sensors, one next to a public highway, 240, which goes to the site, and another 10 miles away at an area on the Columbia River called the K-Basin area. But they didn't report this right away. They reported it like later because they only check these sensors on occasion. So this news just recently came out about these two hits. Well, I mean, it's kind of ludicrous to think that 
the only plutonium particle that might have escaped from this plant ended up 10 miles away. I'm sure there were many millions of particles, perhaps billions of particles, that blew off in the wind, and one of them happened to end up on this sensor next to the river. There's only a couple of sensors they have out there. There's not like thousands of sensors. You know, they got maybe dozens of sensors around this 586-square-mile site. And that's the state sensors that we're talking about right. here. Because I know there's only one EPA RADNET monitor, and that's in Richland, which is ludicrously inadequate to the job of trying to monitor. They should have these sensors at regular distances entirely around the site, even if it is the 586 square miles. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing to note here is that Hanford itself didn't detect this. It had to be an external oversight agency. And Hanford is supposed to be the expert, right, and supposed to be self-reporting these kind of issues. So where is the disconnect here? So there's a lot of questions being asked at this point about, well, how bad really was it then? When we get to June, cycle back to that for a second, you know, there were lots of promises that we're going to make sure this never happens again. And we're going to redouble our efforts to contain the dust inside these facilities. And we're going to get this job done, uh, but we're going to do it safe. And, and workers are number one and blah, blah, blah. So all the stuff they always say. And I'm sure, you know, some people actually believed it. However, they did not put a tent around the facility still. They just resumed operations with these assurances. And workers tell me that, no, it was just business as usual. And by the way, Hanford has this ability, the, man, the contractors there, to demand overtime from its employees, or you can lose your job. So workers were working like 60 and 70 hours a week on this job, and they're tired, but they didn't have a choice. They'd lose their jobs if they refused to work that overtime. And yes, they are represented by unions, but the union gave away that ability to say, no, I don't want the overtime which is kind of weird, but there you have it. Now, the second complaint I've heard from workers is that a lot of the workers are unskilled laborers conducting this work to save money. So the highly skilled, highly trained, certified workforce that Hanford has, they were simply not present at this job and the numbers sufficient. You know, so what does that do? Number one, it cuts costs, but also suppresses the number of questions that workers can raise, right, because they don't know to ask the question. So here's all these newbies sent out from the union hall, you know, with very little training and very little skill set, going to these morning safety briefings, and they don't know to raise their hand and say, well, that doesn't sound safe to me. I'm stopping work. And they don't have the job protections that, you know, the regular skilled craft does at, at the Hanford site. So that's also led, you know, a contributing factor, in my view, to a dangerous work situation was created in order to save the money. So all that's being looked at right now. One of the quotes I came up with in researching the story was from the Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board Weekly Report, which was dated December 1st, 2017, and obviously was referring to a the time before that, and they said, based on the airborne contamination concentration levels observed during early removals and their ability to perform real-time monitoring of airborne contamination concentrations, the contractor has modified their work package to allow a more rapid removal. 
So as you pointed out, there hasn't been any protective measures taken. They just want to do it faster so it's done to their schedule and maybe they get it out of the way faster. What did this decision, among others that may have been made, lead to happening in December? Based upon what they represented to the government they had done and the precautions that they have taken, and now they're really being careful, et cetera, et cetera, they resumed work and very quickly ran into trouble, had another plutonium release. They're not sure why. Someone speculated that as they're putting, misting the dust clouds coming out of the, the site, that one worker didn't use a mist but used kind of like a jet nozzle, which dislodged the contamination instead of suppressed it. Whatever the case, suddenly what they call their uh, continuous air monitors started alarming outside of their safe zone. Within the safe zone, you have to wear protective equipment. You have to wear what are called whites, right? You know, uh, white clothing that protects your street clothing. You have to be surveyed coming in and out of that safe zone. And contamination is not supposed to go outside the safe zone. If it does, I mean, this is where workers are walking around with no protection. They don't have respiratory protection. There are some alarms out there, and that's what happened. Is they, the can alarms went off. And here's a curious thing. This December incident started on a Wednesday with a worker demanding that the project be shut down because of earlier, so from Friday up to Wednesday, releases of plutonium outside the safe zone, which was not well responded to. Like, managers, okay, well, we found it. We cleaned it up. It's okay. And they kept finding new little hotspots. And finally, a worker and then the union and the company all say, well, you know, we shut down work on a Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we heard about this. I called the site and asked, I said, what's going on? Did you have another release? Oh, we're looking into it. That's what they said. I said, well, I didn't see anything in the press. Are you going to make an announcement? Uh, well, we, you know, as soon as we understand what's happening. So I said, well, screw that. So we put that out on Twitter, you know, that there's been a release outside the safety zone that is happening again and put as much detail as we could into it. And, of course, that got other media that reads our Twitter account saying, what's going on, and calling the site. The response from the site to our Twitter feeds was, don't be alarmist. Right? This is an emergency. You know, we're just setting the record straight here. And so by this time, we're tweeting out like every other hour, and so is Susanna Frame from King 5. She is terrific. Yes. She has her own network of uh, informants out there and people who tell her what's going on, as do we. And, you know, we're busy posting documents that are leaked to us. And this is when workers were confined to their offices. They set up barricades around entry and exits from the facility. You couldn't get in. You couldn't get out. Workers were not allowed to leave. And in the you know, parlance of the nuclear industry, that is a standout, right? And that is a take cover event. But Hanford was not going to call it that because that sounds like it's bad. Oh, you have to take cover. So they, they did everything you would expect them to do for a take cover without calling it that because they didn't want the bad publicity. And meanwhile, they're poo-pooing this, right, uh, to the press and saying it's not a big deal, except that the issue kept growing. So they found contamination had spread 
far beyond what they initially thought. So on Thursday night, they lifted the stop work and kept going. It was, it was phenomenal. It's like, you did what? Without figuring out how bad it was? So they missed the fact that plutonium had spread in areas they had no idea it had spread to. Resumed work on a Friday, and then on Sunday, discovered there was plutonium in the parking lot and that it covered workers' cars, and that probably had happened on Friday and maybe before, and they had just missed it. And meanwhile, workers are driving back and forth to their homes, to the community. Right, exactly. So we don't know how many cars actually got contamination on them because workers drove these cars home, and when they came back, they were tested, you know, when they arrived back at work and there was still contamination on them. Well, what about the cars where the contamination blew off when they're in their communities or on the highway or whatever? We don't know that. We don't know if workers had contamination on their clothes or on their shoes or on their boots or in their cars. So this was an atrocious breach of their safety protocols. Now there is the possibility and actually probability that plutonium contamination has entered the community maybe into people's houses, maybe onto playgrounds. Who knows, right? They did look at seven homes of workers that had contamination on their cars. They didn't find any contamination in their homes. But one worker was told, your car is ready. You know, yes, it had contamination. We cleaned it off. Go ahead and drive it home. And he said, well, I'm not taking this car. I'm not sure you did a good job. And I'm just going to leave it with you guys and check it again. And, you know, they kind of rolled their eyes at him and kept his car for like five weeks and didn't do anything. So he made enough noise that they finally got around to testing that car again and found two more spots of plutonium on it when he was told it was clean and ready to go. So at this point, he says, I'm not taking the car, right? I don't know if there are more. So it's, it's really amazing, right, that they would represent to the workforce that is clean and ready to go when it's not. So their credibility is in the toilet right now. You know, no one really trusts what they say, what they're doing, where they found this stuff, and they, they're trying to recover it by being a lot more open. They have a website. Anyone can go look at this stuff. Oh, if people are interested, go to hanford.gov, gov, hanford.gov. And the first thing you will see is the daily report on the plutonium finishing plant. Very interesting. It's got lots and lots of data there, including everything I've been talking about. So at this point now, new reports are coming in of internal contaminations. As far as I know, we're up to 45 workers 31 from June and then additional number from the December incident testing positive for plutonium in their bodies. Did they have enough of those test kits on site that the people in December could be tested in a timely manner? Of course not. I mean, no. They had some still available, but they had to go get some again. And there's a lot more people they need to test at this point. So because of the, the fact the wind really blew this stuff all over the place, and there's work areas next to the plutonium finishing plant, the tank farms, you know, the waste treatment plant, et cetera. They're offering these uh, bioassay tests to any Hanford worker that wants to have them. 
So I don't know how many have wanted them. I think it's probably a couple of hundred. And there's still a lot outstanding that have not yet been analyzed, as far as I understand. You know, these people are, of course, very, very worried because none of this should have happened. There shouldn't have been a single worker exposed or a single car contaminated, much less driven off the site. And it happened several times from the same facility. So you've got a lot of negligence going on here, a lot of failure of government oversight, all because this is a project that's driven by money and driven by schedule. You just mentioned government oversight. Where has EPA been in all of this, or have they been a no-show? EPA's been a no-show, totally out of the picture. What you have is the Washington Department of Ecology and the Washington Department of Health. The Department of Health has taken over some of EPA's responsibilities for monitoring radioactive emissions that might leave the site. So that is the Department of Health's job. So that's why they have sensors around the site. And the Department of Ecology has purview over the hazardous waste handling at the Hanford site. So they both sent letters to the Department of Energy in January that were extraordinary. I mean, mostly there's like, oh, you know, please be careful and we're going to work with you, et cetera. This letter, these letters were much harsher in tone, used words like out of control, you know, situation is out of control, commanding that they not restart work until both agencies were satisfied that they knew what they were doing, independent investigations are going on, and they've established this pretty massive safety zone around the whole area that, because of new discoveries of plutonium contamination, keeps expanding. And they keep evacuating offices away from outside of this zone. And they even had the mass station in this zone. And now workers are saying, well, why do you have a mass station that's dispensing protective gear to workers inside the safety zone where contamination could be? So that's the latest issue that's just been popping up. With the spread of contamination and the suspicions that there are about how far it has gotten, is there any kind of citizen monitoring that has been going on or any agitation or activism rising within the surrounding community? We are. Hanford Challenge is, number one, if we have procured from workers the filters from their automobiles that they drove to and from the site in some cases. And we have also collected some vacuum cleaner bag samples from workers' houses, and those are in the process of being analyzed. And we're very interested in getting more such filters. We're expecting to hear back pretty soon about what, if anything, has been found in any of these samples, environmental samples. The second thing we've done is we're working with a nonprofit called SafeCast. They make or have kits to make citizen-held radiation monitors. So you can walk around with these Geiger counters, essentially, that measure mostly gamma or beta radiation. They're in a weatherproof case, and they, every five seconds, take a reading of background radiation that's going on, and it saves that reading to a little hard drive 
on the device along with the GPS chip records the location, the time, and the date. So at the end of the day, you can take that little hard drive and upload that data onto a website that SafeCast maintains, and safecast.org is, is that website. They recently came up with and gave us, Tamper Challenge, three of these new devices called SolarCast. SolarCast is the same kind of device that I just described. It measures radiation, but it's meant to be stationary. It has batteries on board and a little solar panel on board so that the batteries recharge, so it keeps measuring at night, and then the sun recharges the batteries the next day. And not only does it have the GPS chip and, and the Geiger counter has two Geiger Mueller tubes in it, but it also has a cell phone chip in it. So every hour, it calls up the SafeCast website and reports out the data that is collected over the last hour. So we're in the process of putting these up in and around the Hanford site at this point. These three devices, we're hoping to get more money to work with SafeCast to get even more of these devices around and to get more of these walk-around devices as well so that there is citizen monitoring that's starting to happen. Let's shift this discussion slightly because the Trump administration, in their announced proposed budget for 2019, is proposing a cut of $230 million in Hanford's budget. What will that do? What will the impact be on the cleanup efforts at the site? It won't do it any favors. I just want to point out that even the DOE itself came out with a document that said, we're going to need to raise the cleanup budget substantially in November, December, in what's called the System A plan, in order to achieve compliance with the law and to keep up with our deadlines. We're going to need a lot more money. And the Hanford Advisory Board, which gives advice on environmental cleanup, to the Department of Energy, the EPA, and the state of Washington said, you need $4.5 billion a year in the next budget cycle, and probably for a few years beyond that. And currently, the budget is at you know, $2.2 billion. So here comes President Trump with this new budget saying they want to cut about 10% at a time when you've got plutonium releases, you've had this partial tunnel collapse, The infrastructure at this whole site is failing and is at risk. There's hydrogen gas building up in these tanks. They're subject to uh, the big tanks at Hanford that hold all this radioactive waste. There are so many urgent issues that this proposal just seems crazy coming out of the Trump administration. And the community and the members of Congress from this area are all saying this is not a good idea. You need to be raising this budget which doesn't seem to be in the cards at all, right? Because we've got to pay for these trillion and a half dollar tax cuts to corporate billionaires and to the rich people. So let's not do radioactive waste cleanup. It's just, you know, what is going on here? You know, if we fail to safeguard this site and there is a fire or an explosion because we don't have the people and the technology in place to prevent that from happening, what do you think the cost of recovering from that accident would be? Well, we have examples, right? The Chernobyl disaster cost the former Soviet Union half a trillion dollars and bankrupted the Soviet Union. 
it was an amazing amount of money, and it's still costing, of course, a lot of money, and they've got hundreds of square miles off limits. And the former head of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, said that what sank the Soviet Union was Chernobyl. It wasn't any of the other policies or politics around. It was Chernobyl that brought it from the inside out and brought down the government. Yes, that's right. And it was so expensive, it really just kind of bankrupted the Soviet Union. And Russia washed its hands at the Chernobyl site. So now it's Ukraine's problem. And Fukushima was, we don't know how much that is going to cost, but certainly hundreds of billions of dollars. And there are you know, estimates flying around out there. You probably know them better than me, Libby. But um, uh, Hanford sits in the middle of a lot of agriculture. So a lot of potatoes are grown in the area there. There's vineyards, lots of wine. I mean, there's billions of dollars of agricultural output in that area. There's the Columbia River. A lot of communities downstream depend on the Columbia River, including Portland, Oregon, for water from the Columbia. If you uh, have large releases, then all of that is subject to being contaminated. There's about a million and a half people uh, around the Hanford site that could be subject to evacuation, for instance. We don't want to go there. No one wants to go there, and that's what we're playing with when we cut Hanford's budget. You shouldn't cut the nuclear cleanup budget at Hanford. It is a dynamic, unstable, risky place with, you know, we've just touched upon some of the risks. There are some very, very fundamental risks out there that need tending to immediately. With all of this going on, it's easy to feel overwhelmed or helpless. But of course, there are always things that we can do. So what would you suggest that the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to support you and support perhaps the injection of some sanity to what's going on as regards Hanford? One thing is we always appreciate financial support. We don't get financial support from the government. Uh, not very many. <laughs> they, w- they wouldn't dare. No, no. They, and, you know, I, it's, they take it away as soon as they got us hooked on it, right? So we don't want that money. We don't get that much foundation support because foundations have turned to, you know, climate change and other urgent issues. This doesn't really rate. Even in the Northwest, there's just a few foundations giving us a little bit of money. So, you know, we've been raising money through mass donors, major donors, et cetera. And if if people are in the mood to help us pay our bills and keep doing what we're doing, which is we're bringing lawsuits We are issuing reports, we are talking to the public, we are working with these workers to get the word out and just work with Congress and the state agencies to give them the real story about what's happening at Hanford. And again, this this whole plutonium incident, that was broken by us and by the news media. Hanford was apparently not going to say much about it, right, until we, we forced their hand. So people, if they're in the mood to do that, can go to our website, HanfordChallenge.org. That's the name of our organization. And there's a big donate button, news, alerts for what you can do. One of the big crises at Hanford right now is proposed shortcuts on dealing with the high-level nuclear waste in these tanks. So we've got a campaign we're about to start that we need people to call and contact you know, their members of Congress in particular to say we need to do something to safeguard the waste 
in these leaky underground nuclear waste tanks that are failing. And because we're so far behind on any treatment system for this waste, any way to get the waste out of these tanks, which needs to happen as soon as possible but won't happen for 20 years, we need new tanks. And it takes seven years to build a new tank. So we need probably at least a dozen new tanks just to safeguard the groundwater in the region as tanks fail and start spilling their contents into the groundwater, which eventually goes to the Columbia River. So people need to contact their members of Congress and say, Hanford is a huge priority for this region. California, Oregon, Utah, Idaho, right? All of those are in the pathway of potential releases happening from the Hanford site, depending on the size and the scale and the direction of the wind and all that. So people really need to be heard on this. And, you know, we have uh, ways to contact Congress, you know, messages to send on that same website. Tom, Hanford Challenge is doing a tremendous job, and it certainly is a challenge that you are up against. So I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, and I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge. We will continue reporting on the stories that Hanford Challenge comes up with, and if you want to check them out yourself, you can go to their website, HanfordChallenge.org. And if you want information on the radiation monitors we talked about, go to SafeCast.org. We'll also be providing an article that we got from Tom Carpenter on what plutonium actually does to the body. Important information in light of the minimizing of the exposure that the workers at Hanford have received. All of these links will, of course, be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 348. Activist shout-outs! This is one for the people up in the Hanford area. The group Consequences of Radiation Exposure, or CORE, is a Washington State nonprofit that is planning an historic mission by a survivor of the Nagasaki atomic bomb who is being brought to Washington State to meet with people living near the Hanford site, where the plutonium for the A-bomb that fell on Nagasaki was produced. The Nagasaki-Hanford Bridge Project will take place between March 5th and 11th, and there is outreach for speaking engagements and media coverage. You can learn more by contacting the event coordinator, Norma Field, at norma.field at gmail.com. Of course, we will have a link. A list of events commemorating the 7th anniversary of the start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster is available on the website of Hervé Courtois, one of the forces behind nuclear-news.net and dunrenard.wordpress.com. The date the Fukushima disaster began was March 11 of 2011, so there's still time to create an event if there is not yet one in your area. And if you do have an event planned, you can let Hervé know so he can add it to the list. Link on website. Why are you not surprised by that? As regards North St. Louis, we still have about 35 days left to let the EPA know what we want done at the Westlake Landfill in North St. Louis. 
This is where the illegally buried World War II nuclear weapons waste is in the Westlake landfill, adjacent to an underground fire coming from the Bridgeton landfill. This story was the subject of the documentary Atomic Homefront, which you can still see on HBO for free until March 8th. As regards communicating our concerns to the Environmental Protection Agency, among the talking points requested by the residents of the surrounding neighborhoods, which have been impacted so devastatingly by the radioactive waste, they are asking for full removal of the radioactive waste instead of the 70% that the EPA has said that they will do, relocation of this waste off-site instead of on-site storage, and an immediate buyout of the homes closest to the radioactive waste. And any other concerns that you might have, throw those in as well. The EPA needs to hear from us on this. And a shout-out to outdoor goods manufacturer Patagonia. The company is providing funding to the Grand Canyon Trust in order to urge Arizona's congressional delegation, as well as the tone-deaf current administration, to uphold the 20-year ban on new uranium mines around the Grand Canyon. We're in danger of losing that very important protection. And if you're working on environmental nuclear issues, you might be eligible for a grant as well. It never hurts to try. Contact them at patagonia.com. Here's today's final thought. Admiral Hyman Rickover is often referred to as the father of the nuclear Navy. But later in his life, he had a genuine change of heart. On January 29, 1982, Rickover testified before the Joint Economic Committee of Congress on the hazards of nuclear. Rickover was probably the single most influential person in setting our government's heightened production of nuclear vessels and weapons during the Cold War. That is why his quote is so remarkable. He said, I'll be philosophical. Until about two billion years ago, it was impossible to have any life on Earth. That is, there was so much radiation on Earth, you couldn't have any life fish, or anything. Gradually, about two billion years ago, the amount of radiation on this planet, and probably in the entire system, reduced and made it possible for some form of life to begin. And it started in the seas. I understand from what I've read that the amount of radiation has been gradually decreasing because all radiation has a half-life, which means ultimately there will be no radiation. Now, when we go back to using nuclear power, we are creating something which nature tried to destroy to make life possible. But every time you produce radiation, you produce something that has life, in some cases for billions of years. And I think the human race is going to wreck itself, and it's far more important that we get control of this horrible force and try to eliminate it. I do not believe that nuclear power is worth it if it creates radiation. Then you might ask me, why do I have nuclear-powered ships? That's a necessary evil. I would sink them all. This from the father of the nuclear navy, Admiral Hyman Rickover. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 20th, 
2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net and Sean McGee, deunrenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, dianuke.org, nonprofitsoapbox.com, hanfordchallenge.org, seattletimes.com, koto2.wordpress.com, patagonia.com, triblive.com, capecodtimes.com and the reporting of Christine Legere, thenewsmessenger.com, bostonherald.com, businessinsider.com, rockyflatsdownwinders.com, thebulletin.org, japantimes.co.jp, environews.tv, thehill.com, sciencemag.org, energytransition.org, the soul-dead cubicle drones grinding out press releases for world nuclear news, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a shout-out to you, the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers literally around the world. 123 countries around the world, plus everyone who's listening on broadcast stations in the U.S. You are the ones who are showing your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness that you are. Thank you so much for gathering at the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page and podcast page. We do have two pages. And if you haven't yet, be sure to stop by, click like, follow, post, and share. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, you can contact us with their info by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. Just click on the big red donate button or the big green donate button at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that radioactive nuclear waste is forever. No one is immune to its impact on their health. We have no way of safely storing or neutralizing it. And still, the nuclear industry creates more every day. There you go. That is your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.